Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak to Yuck Yuck's co-founder and CEO Mark Breslin about his lasting memories of actor and comedian Gilbert Gottfried, who passed away today at the age of 67, and the comedic legacy Gottfried leaves behind. We meet the creator of a social media feed that fact-checks companies and organizations about their commitment to gender pay equity. Learn all about the Wage Gap app. We speak to an intensive care physician about the sixth wave of COVID hitting Canada and the impact the pandemic continues to have on our healthcare system. But first, we head to Winnipeg, where Manitobans are racing for not just any spring snowstorm, but what could be one of the biggest blizzards in decades. You may know this already, but people on the West Coast, I'm in Victoria, we spend a lot of the winter showing off to people in other parts of the country just how warm and unwintry it is in these parts. Well, today it snowed. April the 12th, and it snowed in Victoria. Probably more snow than we've seen on most other days in 2022. It's snowed in Vancouver too, I think. It's not impossible, certainly rare, um, (laughs) but it caused quite the uproar here today. And it wasn't even that much snow. It's all gone already. So my question for you tonight is when it comes to coping with a lot of snow, who does it best? I've lived in a lot of places. I've lived in Edmonton, Montreal, Quebec City, Ottawa, Toronto, Vancouver, here. Uh, Victoria briefly. Uh, Montreal handles it pretty well. Toronto, not so much. Victoria, we won't go there. There are exceptions, obviously. But let me know what you think. Who handles snow the best? 877-399-9898. 877-399-9898. Let me know where you are and who you are. We'll share those answers with our listeners throughout the show. No one can blame you tonight if you were to pick Winnipeg. Because Manitoba's capital isn't just bracing for snow, it's preparing for what, according to Environment Canada, is a winter storm in the coming days that could bring with it the worst blizzard in decades, around 30 to 50 centimeters of snow. Not just that, but bitter northern winds, they say, gusting from 70 to 90 kilometers an hour. Here to help us get a sense of just how unwelcome this all is, is Richard Cloutier. He's the co-host of The News on Winnipeg's CJOB. Richard, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Oh, it's great to talk to you. And who does snow best? What's oh, a no-brainer? Winnipeg. It would have to be. It would have to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is one of those evenings where I look outside right now, and there's still snow on the ground here. Uh, is there is the gathering storm as of midnight Central Time? The RCMP have announced uh, really unprecedented that. Highways throughout southern Manitoba will be closed officially, meaning that if you're stuck on the road, you're not going to get much of a response. Uh, CAA, the auto club, has already said we're not putting our drivers at risk and putting them on the highway. Environment Canada all day has been saying prepare for this, but yes, it is looking like it's going to be the worst in several decades. Uh, I was around 25 years ago in 1997. I just really started a few years into uh, my tenure at 680 CJOB in Winnipeg, and we went through the big April snowstorm that led to the flood of that century in 1997. So um, I I think after a long, hard winter uh, with COVID, a lot of people in these parts were quite ready for spring. And yes, this is another slap in the face, but we can certainly handle it. But there's a real change of attitude here. Um, And I think it's only in the last few years when it comes to these major events. Um, We pride ourselves on being, you know, these hardy souls. And, And I remember as a kid having the conversation with my grandfather. And I said, you know, why, why Winnipeg? Why Manitoba? And I remember my grandfather in, in French sitting me down and, and telling me that, well, ultimately, uh, son, it was free land. And I said, what? Free land? Um, yeah, no one really wanted to be here, but we got free land. And if you could survive a winter in Manitoba, you could really make it anywhere. So, Ben, um, the attitude change goes to, I think, with pandemic, we're used to staying home uh, a little bit more. But there was a time in the middle of a snowstorm, we would get out and help each other. We still will do that in a snowstorm. But I think 
the attitude more and more now by government, by police is stay the heck home. Don't be a typical Manitoban. Don't try to brave the storm. Don't try to get to work. Be safe. It's, there are a lot of distractions in the house these days, so it's probably a little easier mm. these days to stay home. The other thing I read, because I was going to ask you about snow clearing, and I thought, well, you know, if it snows in most parts of the country in mid-April, it tends to melt. Then I realized, forget melting. It's actually going to get really cold over the weekend. It's going to be minus 13 on Easter Sunday, minus 17 or 14 on Tuesday next week. That seems, that seems cruel. Yeah, it does seem cruel. And as a result, we do have uh, overnight parking bans uh, in effect already on the major snow routes. We do have snow equipment standing by. Uh, the critical is that uh, in types of snow like this, uh, they will um, station front end loaders and plows outside fire paramedic stations to make sure that they can get through. All of that has been activated and those plows are standing by if need be. But as I look outside right now, we're not waiting for this. This snow event supposed to happen overnight into tomorrow and then last through tomorrow into Thursday. So it's going to be long. It's going to be extended. I always maintain, though, that there is a difference between Winnipeg proper and rural Manitoba. Uh, I, I look at the blizzard warnings right now. It's outside the city of Winnipeg. That's where you don't want to travel. That's where people have been preparing for the last several days. Uh, because Manitoba Hydro has said you could be without power for days, if not a week, uh, in parts of rural Manitoba. Uh, some communities have uh, gathered uh, emergency centres and gymnasiums, especially um, in First Nations communities, Indigenous communities. Uh, so we've already seen that. But uh, we are still awaiting a decision as to whether or not schools in Winnipeg will be closed tomorrow and then on Thursday, the last time that occurred was in 1997. Back then, we hearken back to 1997, a quarter century ago. Um, what have people been telling you, Richard, about what's the, what's the mood? Are, are, are people fed up or are they thinking, okay, one last push of winter and then we're done? Yeah, uh, there is that contingent of Manitobans that are hardy, that very much, you know, you live here, you grow up here, you take pride in being able to say to Victoria, you got a little sprinkling of snow, we feel so very bad for you. Or in Toronto, are you set to bring out the army? So there's that side as well. But given um, pandemic, given everything else, I think there are people here that just want to get this over with that are looking at this and going, you know what, uh, anything can happen in April and in May in Manitoba, but, you know, what did we do to deserve this? So we'll do the best over the next couple of days. We're going to see the best of Manitoba in the next couple of days. Um, we've got pretty good snow clearing here for sure. We've already blown our budget. We do our snow clearing budget on a, on a calendar basis. Uh, the amount of snow that we got, in January, February, and March, we've blown our budget for the year already, but we still clear the snow. It still gets done. So there's the hardy ones that are saying, bring it on and we can handle this. But there are those that I've talked to today that are saying, oh, come on, come on, enough <laughs> of this. Richard, we'll leave it at that and we'll check in with you tomorrow because I'm looking forward to seeing if it snows as much as we think it's going to snow. Stay safe. And uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight and filling us in on what's happening. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you uh, calling and, and you take care out there. Be safe in Victoria. We will. Don't want yeah. that snow to get to you at all. <laughs> We're, I'll get out the boots. <laughs> all right. Richard Cloutier, <laughs> co-host of the news on Winnipeg CJOB, joining us from Winnipeg tonight ahead of that big storm. Well, the entertainment world took a pause today to remember a unique voice in comedy, one of the titans of this era. Gilbert Gottfried passed away at the age of 67. A statement from his family reads, we are heartbreaking to announce the passing of our beloved Gilbert Gottfried after a long illness. In addition to being the most iconic voice in comedy, Gilbert was a wonderful husband, brother, friend, and father to his two young children. Although today is a sad day, for all of us, please keep laughing as loud as possible in Gilbert's honor.
Gottfried performed stand-up comedy for more than 50 years. He became known as a comedian's comedian, his representative said in a statement today. It led to roles in movies such as Beverly Hills Cop 2, Problem Child. He was also the voice of the parrot Iago in Disney's Aladdin. Boy, Jafar's going to be happy to see you. Excellent work, Iago. Ah, go on. No, really, on a scale of 1 to 10, you are an 11. Oh, Jafar, you're too kind. I'm embarrassed. I'm blushing. You can't mistake that voice, Gilbert Gottfried. Joining me now with more on Gottfried and his legacy is Mark Breslin. He's a producer, actor, comedian, author, and of course, co-founder and CEO of Yuck Yucks, the country's largest chain of comedy clubs, and a frequent stop for Gilbert Gottfried. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. Well, then, you know, it's a sad day for my for me, and it's a sad day yeah. for anybody who loved comedy. Yeah, tell me about that, because, I mean, you have some great stories about meeting a very young Gilbert Gottfried, but I was just wondering about your initial reaction to his passing. Well, I was shocked because only two weeks ago, he did a theater concert in Toronto, and I guess he had a long-term illness, and I guess you would never know it if he was doing major concerts, so I was really shocked. I did not expect this at all. He was still, I mean, at 67, he was still able to, to be as funny and as, and as sharp as he was over the years, I gathered. Yeah, he, um, he never lost his edge, that's for sure. And if there's anything that he ever wanted to do was to find that edge. He was, wasn't interested in simply being a success. Gilbert wanted to be a scandalous success, and um, he achieved that, <laughs> didn't he? He certainly did. Um, it was funny. I was reading just some of the things that you'd written about him in the past, and there's one thing that, that struck me was when you first met him. Well, um, yeah, we were the first people, Yuck Yucks was the first, uh, we were the first people to ever bring him in. Um, uh, he had never gone outside of New York to perform. In fact, when we brought him in, in 1979, uh, I guess, he, I think it was 19 years old. He was very young. He'd never been on a plane before. He'd never stayed in a hotel room by himself before. Um, he was very unworldly. And in fact, he was so nervous when he was in Toronto that he, he told me he wanted somebody to walk him from the hotel uh, to the club and back every night. And it was a completely safe neighborhood. Um, he never left the hotel during the day. But then when we bring him in more often, he became more worldly and sort of a little less eccentric. But he was always eccentric. You know, um, we booked him in a club in Ottawa before we had a club in Ottawa. And after the show, this would have been about 1981, maybe, maybe 82. Um, after the show, we all went to a speakeasy. There was a bar set up and there were bar stools. And there was a dog. Somebody had a dog, a nice big dog um, that was sitting on the floor next to one of the stools. Gilbert got on a stool, ordered a drink and started talking to the dog as if the dog were just a normal human being and did not break character for over two hours, he kept talking to the dog. <laughs> was that brilliant or really annoying? I'm trying to figure that out. Well, that's the thing. You know, he made something brilliant about um, being annoying. Um, certainly that voice was a, that Brooklyn honk, but which, by the way, he really didn't have in, in everyday life. It was right. really exaggerated um, for effect, but it was completely annoying. Um, and he loved to annoy you. Um, if you remember his bit on maple syrup, where he keeps saying maple syrup over and over and over and over again until you want to pull your hair out, but he gets funnier and funnier and funnier. So, Gilbert, you know, there's a certain laws in comedy. One of is the law of threes. If you're telling a joke, um, there's this, there's that, and then there's the punchline. And there's also the rule of nines, which is a lesser known one. But Gilbert founded the, the, the rule of infinity, which is if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, eventually it becomes funny. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I actually was going to play that maple syrup joke before you, but it's two minutes, even the good part of it is two minutes long. So I thought I would, yeah, I know. we might be able to, we might be, able to, I'm sure you never want to hear it again. So just as well that I didn't play it for you, uh, well, but it is remarkably it's, it's funny. Brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant in what he in what he does with things, um, and how he can take something and and just he just puts it in your face again and again and again until he wears you down. He wears you out, and you have no choice but to laugh. 
And yet, reading what you'd written about uh, Gilbert Gottfried in the past, I gather that that even someone who worked for you went to see him and and then booked him and said, "You're going to love this guy." Did you yeah, maintain? Well, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, not at all. I was just going to ask you: Did you maintain? How was your first impression? And did you maintain that that level of of of? Did you like him all the way through? Well, you have to remember that this is in a day before the internet. And so there was no way of easily researching a, a new comic. Um, I had a, um, an assistant named Leatris who went to New York, went to uh, some comedy clubs, and came back and said, you have to book this guy, Gilbert Gottfried. And I said, Leatris, you know I don't book anybody unless I personally see them. And she said, I will put my job on the line. If you, if you book him and you don't like him, fire me. Well, no one's ever said that to me before, and I trusted her judgment anyway. And so, yes, it was the only—he was the only person I ever booked sight unseen. He showed up and started in on his act, and he did an hour, and it was the most riveting, um, fearless hour of comedy I've seen in uh, by almost anybody. The only person I could say that reached uh, touched me the same way probably was Sam Kinison, who came well, maybe five yeah. years later. Yeah. But I saw Sam personally. I never saw uh, Gilbert personally when the first time we booked him. And yeah, I was really nervous about it. Um, but he was fantastic. And here's something he did. At the, uh, I remember way back in 79. He, he was also a contortionist. He, he had trick shoulders. So he could do all kinds of weird sort of Cirque really? du Soleil things. With, yeah, nobody knows <laughs> this. Know he I did all, all these weird Cirque du Soleil things with his body. Um, on stage that that first feature that he did that he never did again, never referred to it again, uh, never did it in public again that I'm aware of. But he was experimenting with that at that time. So you must have, from the very get-go, always sort of kept up with what he was up to all the way through, knowing him as a 19-year-old and seeing him on his first ever trip onto what would become a long and very successful career in your business. Yeah, well, we had a really nice relationship, a really nice friendship. But remember, he, you know, lived in New York, so it wasn't like I saw him every day. But um, he was, uh, as long as, you know, his career went up and down and up and down and up and down. For instance, after he did Iago uh, in Aladdin, he was kind of unbookable in clubs because his price went up so high. But then after that settled down, he started to do clubs again, so we started to book him again. He was always referred to, and this is something I hear about, referred to as a comedian's comedian. And I know that people who don't aren't in your business like to say those words and then not know what they actually mean. So I'll confess to that. But what made him that? A comedian's comedian is a comedian watches a comedian says, wow, I wish I could do that. Or I wish I, I did that. Um, so there's an enormous amount of respect because the comedian is doing something which the, the other comedians know is very difficult. Um, very nervy, uh, very transgressive, very uh, extreme, uh, all kinds of different things, very creative. And so the comedians want to watch it because it isn't, he's breaking new ground. And Gilbert would break new ground every time he was on stage. And so comedians loved him. What was it about what he did that perhaps someone else, a layperson, wouldn't notice that a comedian would pick out right away and go, that is you know, that is world-class stuff. Well, the dark, the darkness of it all. I mean, making um, uh, jokes about 9-11 three weeks after the fact, no other comic would do that. Nobody. I can't think of anyone who would do that. Uh, at least nobody who was famous. But gambling with your own fame uh, and your own reputation is something that maybe the, the layman might not see. But he was doing that all the time. And the Affleck duck. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, issue right. is a good example of that, making fun of, you know, people who were killed in a, uh, in a tsunami half a world away, which cost him his very lucrative endorsement deal. But he would do it because for him, the comedy was the most important thing, not the money, not the fame, but the comedy itself. It's like he followed the goddess of comedy. She was his muse. 
a comedian's comedian, so to speak. Uh, I'm speaking yeah. with Mark Breslin, producer, actor, comedian, author, and of course, founder, co-founder and CEO of Yuck Yucks, this country's largest chain of comedy clubs. We're talking about the passing of Gilbert Gottfried, someone that Mark knew well, uh, brought to this country for the very first time way back in 1979 to perform some contortionism, which I had no idea about. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, I really just want to ask you a bit more about his legacy. Uh, and you talked a lot about a sort of, you know, surreal comedians, the Emo Phillipses of the time, the uh, you mentioned Sam Kinison and just whether there's still room for them uh, in the industry. We'll be back with that. It's a pleasure to have Mark Breslin here with us this evening, producer, actor, comedian, author, and of course, co-founder and CEO of Yuck Yucks, uh, Canada's largest chain of comedy clubs, a frequent stop for Gilbert Gottfried. We're talking about the legacy of Gottfried who passed away today at the age of 67. Um, I, I, I guess in re- the question people would always ask, and you, you referred to this earlier, is what was he like in person? Because you, you talked about the sort of really exaggerated, you know, Brooklyn honk. Uh, but was, was he, I read someone else mentioning that he was sort of two different people. Like there was a stage Gilbert Gottfried and there was a very different Gilbert Gottfried offstage at times. Well, I think that's true of so many performers. I mean, I always fantasize that Bob Dylan goes home after his uh, concert and goes, well, I don't have to talk like that anymore. Um, You know, Uh, so uh, the the same thing is probably true for Gilbert. Um, If you had him alone and he was your friend and he trusted you, he would speak in a relatively normal voice, but always with the kind of attitude and lilt of an old Jewish man who was three times older than, than he really was. Um, which was always disconcerting and weird. But um, that's kind of one of the tricks of his act is that he was this, he adopted this persona of a kind of um, old Jewish guy um, that you might meet in a nursing home screaming. Why is he screaming? Screaming because he's hard of hearing. So, you know, uh, and, and then grafted it on to this young guy. So you have this young guy coming out with an old man's voice, and that's always interesting for comedy. Norm MacDonald used to do that, too, in a different kind of way. Not as an True. aggressive kind of way, but he was also kind of, you know, almost like an old guy sitting around the cracker barrel on the porch of a general store. Right. Were you surprised at all just about the arc of, of, of his career, how he ended up doing things like Aladdin, how he ended up on Hollywood Squares? Well, Gilbert was funny no matter what he did. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. He could do so much. I mean, he was such a great, he was so great on those roasts, for instance. I mean, I think he, if he were, if he was on one of those roasts, he was the one who stole the show all the time, every time. So he he had a lot of, a lot of things he could do, Um, probably not act in a conventional way, but he could do so, so many things. His acting was very, he was always Gilbert Gottfried. It didn't matter what he was playing, even yes, in those yes. in those movies like Problem Child or Beverly Hills Cop and so forth. Um, you mentioned at one point, you wrote an article about that era of, of comedians who were so popular at the time, Emo Phillips, uh, Bobcat Goldwave, uh, Sam Kinison, I guess, to some extent, um, and Gilbert Gottfried, the sort of really out there, not the average, you know, not the average person comedian. Is there still room for those kinds of comedians out there, do you think? Well, you know, it's one of my favorite genres of comedy is that sort of surrealist uh, kind of uh, comedy. And I would include, you, you mentioned a, uh, a number of them, but I would also add to that uh, Stephen Wright and right. Dimitri Martin. And there's the other guy whose name I always forget who died in New Jersey in a hotel room. Oh, Bob Maybe you remember. Not Bob Saget. No, um, no, he was no. I know. Yes, I'll look it up. Yeah, well, listen, <laughs> yeah, up. we'll look it up he later rather man. than waste airtime. But um, <laughs> it was something. I it was a it was a subgenre that I always always loved. And now um, the sort of uh, uh, the kind of thing that most comics are doing is kind of confessional. Um, you watch them and you walk away knowing a tremendous amount about their life and what they believe. You'd never know in a million years how Gilbert Gottfried, what he thought or what he believed or how he voted. Uh, and this, that was true of all the comics that you, you, we were, you, know, you mentioned in that list. And um, this seems to be what everybody wants now. Um, I'm hoping for the circle to you know, revolve again and we'll have more of those kinds of comics in our midst because I think they're just so funny. 
Mitch Hedberg. Was that the, was that who? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Google. Thank you, Google. Yeah. I don't know why I keep forgetting his name. He was so great. I mean, I guess people who are doing this now. Very. I I can't think of. I can't think of a well-known one. In fact, that's new and doing that kind of material. Because I was thinking today, just watching old clips. You know, particularly that one of. of of uh, Gilbert Gottfried at Just for Laughs in 1988 telling the maple syrup joke, thinking, I don't remember seeing anyone, you know, I watch comedy specials on Netflix and so on, and people are still, you know, there's lots of funny people out there, but I haven't seen anything like that again, not, not in a while. As I say, everybody is more focused on telling you what they think and believe than just on being funny. And, um, uh, you know, there's all this stuff, and this has all come up with the, all the Chappelle controversies, um, about, you know, we watch these comics now and we know so much about um, their political views, their social views, about them, about their dating views, their, their personal lives. You watch Gilbert Gottfried, you know none of this. None of it. I defy you to tell me how he votes, how he voted. You, you wouldn't be able to, I, I, if, he even, if he did vote, I don't know. But I defy you to tell me, you to tell me anything about his actual life. And that was... That was a great thing because you could get away from all of this, uh, all of these, you know, ideas that people talk about all the time now. Um, you know, it's all part of the CNN, uh, you know, uh, newscast and uh, and the news cycle. And he had nothing to do with that. He was not interested in that. I have a few minutes left. I, I really wanted your lasting memory of, of Gilbert Gottfried. Well, you know, he, uh, he, we weren't just for laughs. All he wanted to do it afterwards was go to a strip club. Um, he loved strip clubs. But this is, I'm not breaking any confidences here. Um, many people have, have, have said this. Um, I, this was before he got married. Um, he loved to go to strip clubs, and uh, not everybody does. Um, so he would wander around just for laughs looking for somebody to go to, uh, go out to uh, club super sex or whatever it was called. In Montreal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I grew up in Montreal, so I remember, I remember oh, those so you, places. So you know those I, places, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you couldn't, even as a little boy, you walked down St. Catherine Street, there they were, right? The signs were hard to miss. So that, so that would be the lasting memory. I mean, he was just a strange man. I mean, he, he struck me as being, from the outside, just a very curious character, and, and that made him so engaging to watch. Um, wild on stage, uncompromising on stage, but very gentle in real life. If you haven't seen the documentary on him, you should see it because it's very revealing because here's this madman on stage and then it cuts to his home life and it's as normal as you can possibly imagine. <laughs> I guess everyone has, has a life off stage as well. Mark Breslin, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about Gil- Gilbert Gottfried and for letting us know that he had performed contortionism in his, in his early stage. Yeah, I've, I've never 70s. seen a reference to that, but it's true. He did that. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your time and for uh, for staying up late tonight in Toronto as well. I appreciate it. No problem, Ben. Thank you. We talked about British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in some hot water of his own doing uh, in the last half hour. We're going to stay in England this time, move up north a little bit to Manchester to get more on a pretty impactful social media feed that's tackling gender pay equity. And it really took off this year on International Women's Day. I mentioned today because it is Pay Equity Day here in Canada, a day to remind everyone that pay inequality between women and men continues to be a persistent phenomenon around the world and here at home. In fact, this country has the eighth worst gender wage gap in the world, according to the Canadian Women's Foundation. Imagine 89 cents. That's what women working full-time and part-time make for every dollar that a man makes. So how do you raise awareness about it? Well, one team in the UK used available data, which is far richer in Britain than it is in this country. That's another matter. Regarding pay equity, if you're a company above 250 people, 250 people or more, you have to publish your pay equity data in Britain. So they used that data. And then they created an online bot that would scan for companies or organizations that posted good news stories on International Women's Day using hashtags that are popular on that day sort of showing off their best side about how they care about the women that work for them, care about gender pay equity. And then their bot would automatically share and post um, 
the gender wage gap of that specific organization. Some of them weren't very good. Some of them were actually quite complementary. Organizations that had improved their gender wage gaps, that was recognized. But those who put out uh, tweets that were very, very complimentary about their own good work on this day, their own support for International Women's Day, were then showing that, hey, you know, your gender wage gap is 34%, for, exa- for example. It's a really interesting site. Uh, it's called At Pay App Gap, and it was created uh, by two people, including in Manchester, Francesca Lawson, who is the co-creator of Pay App Gap, the gender pay gap bot. And she joins me now to tell us all about it. Francesca Lawson, thank you so much for your time tonight. No problem. Thank you for having me on the show. I guess just the inspiration uh, to begin, where did the idea for this uh, for this Twitter handle come up or this Twitter idea come up from? So it comes from a place of frustration of seeing every day around International Women's Day companies will put out really supportive messages that don't seem to be backed up by any action. There seems like there's very little progress being made and the kind of grand schemes of gender equality. So it's right that, you know, the reality and what companies are putting out doesn't match up. It's like there's one day a year where they pretend that everything's, everything's been solved, but it hasn't. And so we wanted to make sure that the real issues are still being talked about and still um, still being highlighted. Um, and thankfully, in the UK, we have a regulation which forces companies with more than 250 employees to declare their gender pay gap data. So that makes a really nice um, factual counterpoint to the more sort of emotional kind of sentimental messages that companies like to communicate on International Women's Day. So I would imagine if a company is big enough or has enough employees, regardless of what they post, you can go find their actual gender pay gap and then respond with it. That's precisely what you did know. Exactly. Yes. Um, we, the way that the gender gap bot works is it scrapes the data from the government source and it just publishes it whenever there's a tweet um, from a company in that list that we have been able to match their Twitter accounts. We didn't catch them all. You know, some didn't tweet and some don't have matching names. So like they might go by um, a group um, and the company data, but have um, individual brands for their Twitter accounts. Having looked through all the different um, the different tweets that went up that day, and, and just to be clear, so listeners understand, you don't actually sit there tweeting these individually. It's it's generated automatically, right? Completely automated. Which is a brilliant idea, by the way. <laughs> so when, in fact, you, on International Women's Day, when all these different organizations, and I, I looked down the list, uh, they ranged from you know city councils to universities to uh, government agencies to corporations. Um, when they started posting these International Women's Day using these hashtags for their posts, your bot would automatically respond and say, well, in fact, the pay equity gap at your organization is X. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And we did it for, you know, there's some that have actually achieved pay equity and there's some that um, have a gender pay gap that kind of tips towards women. And we highlighted all of them as well because, you know, we're not here to make a statement as much as we're just putting the data back into um, the public's hands so that they can kind of come to their own conclusions and they can be more aware of what's going on behind, um, you know, the photos of all the female employees lined up having brunch, for instance. What was the reaction then of um, of the companies that were, I mean, I guess what was the reaction of both companies? Because if you were pointing out those who have succeeded, they're, they're worthy of praise. And if you pointed out those that were, uh, I guess the term for environmental stuff is greenwashing, but uh, in this case, those that were sort of trying to sell a story that wasn't exactly so, what was the reaction of the companies that were, or the organizations better yet, that were uh, found themselves on the receiving end of the bot? I think there's three main three main responses. Um, there's the ignore option. Quite a lot went down that route. That is the, by and large, the majority of them ignored us. Um, there was those that responded, which is good. You know, that's what we want to see. We want to see them engaging with the data and not hiding from it. 
And then there was those that kind of denied it or um, accused us of spreading misinformation, um, which that was, I think it worked, didn't work out very well for them because our information is exactly as it appears on the government's database. And so very quickly, you know, the public can see that they are trying to weasel out of taking responsibility for the inequalities within their organization. Um, and that just kind of shows that it's it was only really about, you know, getting some cheap likes um, and kind of expanding their reach. Um, it wasn't actually about showing support for the cause. Um, but yeah, there's most of them fell into the just ignore us category, which I guess is slightly disappointing because we really want them to take responsibility. I know that some organizations, in fact, uh, deleted their social media posts and tried to repost them to avoid your bot. That's true. Um, unfortunately, that didn't work out too well for them either. Um, we had a slight delay in getting the um, reposts um posting the gender pay gap on their reposted tweets um, because there's a queuing system with all the tweets that we've got to go out. And when they delete, they go back to the bottom of the queue when they repost. So it took us a little while to catch up with them again, but most of them we did. Um, the only way that people successfully got around it really was to include no International Women's Day key phrases within their tweet. So a few put them in images instead, um, which is a, an absolute nightmare for accessibility. Like if you put text in images, it can't be understood by screen readers. Um, so that was one option. A few blocked us as well. Oh, you got blocked. That, yeah, there was about 20 accounts blocked us so that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't post their gender pay gap. I mean, you have 250,000 Twitter followers now for this specific account, the pay gap app. Um, were you surprised at all by how successful and how much attention the campaign got? Yeah, absolutely. Like we first ran it in um, March 2021 and we went from a standing start to about um, one and a half thousand followers in the space of a couple of days. And we were really pleased with that. We were like, this is, you know, a huge, huge impact. And I think we were maybe expecting that we'd maybe repeat that this year or like about on the same scale. We had no idea that it was going to end up spreading so wide and being picked up by um, the world's media. Um, and so that just feels, you know, massively validating that there is demand for this type of accountability and this type of transparency um, that we've not necessarily had from um, companies on social media before. When you set out to do this, I mean, obviously the, the idea was to call attention to two things, I would imagine, which is one, gender pay equity or gaps, but also hypocrisy. Uh, which of the two do you think you've been more successful at raising attention about? Mm, that's a difficult one because I really want to say the gender pay um, gender pay gap you know that's that is sort of what we want to be raising awareness of because if we're not talking about a problem we can't expect to solve it so that's what we really wanted to get into the spotlight however I think that the uh, the hypocrisy side of it is sort of the more the more juicy part and I think that's the part that you know, people really kind of responded well to. It's just sort of the simple, almost cold way of call, calling out um, calling out hypocrisy, I think is probably what, what got so much interest. But, you know, I'm really glad that that means that a lot of people have seen the data too. I know this is something you did just for the United Kingdom in this case. Uh, have you had interest from other parts of the world? I know we don't have anything similar here in Canada. It is, it is. Uh, it would be interesting to see. We also don't have the same rules about disclosure of, of pay equity either. Uh, but it would be interesting to see something repeated elsewhere. Have you had interest from other parts of the world about trying to replicate what you achieved? 
yes, we have. We've had um, people ask for, you know, US companies to be um, to be included as well. And I think this is something that we definitely love to do, you know, because gender inequality or pay inequality isn't just a UK problem. It's just that's the data set that we have at the minute. If there was some data to become available for other countries in the world, you know, we definitely want to expand that. Um, and I believe Ireland are also introducing um, a similar regulation to the UK this year. So with any luck, we should be able to um, get a few Ireland-based companies as well. So really, there is a question of having transparency and data at its source to be able to do this. You, you absolutely need the data set to be able to make a fair and a fair comparison, or at least make a fair accusation. That's it. Yes. The whole thing works because we've got the data. Um, so if, you know, we have data for any other issues to say, you know, race inequality or greenwashing as well, we definitely be interested in replicating what we've done here to highlight those issues too. Um, and we have had a bit of interest, like people contacting us um, that saying that they have data, but when it's not from that government source, it just takes a little bit more research to find out how legitimate it is and kind of where it's come from. That's it. So any future plans for either next year, uh, th- you know, this a year from now or, or going forward? What, what, uh, what's, in, what's in store for the, for the bot? So just this week, we have um, kind of changed um, our kind of output slightly. So the next, the most recent set of gender pay gap data for the UK was published um, on the 5th of April. So we're now using that data to publish um, graphs for each company on the data of the rate of change of their gender pay gap. Um, Because I think what's interesting as well is not just, you know, the raw numbers of, you know, what is the difference between men's and women's average earnings, but also who's doing a good job at reducing it and who's just letting it spiral out of control and it's quite worrying to see how many people or how many companies slash organizations have increased their gender pay gap so it's got wider over the past year Um, and I think that potentially um, COVID restrictions and things like that will have an impact on these um, these figures for a long time to come. So I'm really excited to keep tracking it over the next few years and keep publishing it. Any parting advice to companies that are planning their social media posts for International Women's Day 2000 and, uh, 2023, Francesca? Just be honest. If you've got something worth saying, you've got to be already doing something worth doing. So don't do brunches, don't do photo shoots. Show us data tell us what your problems are what you're doing um what you're doing about them and if you're not really doing making any effort towards gender equality it's probably best to sit this one out francesca lawson i think that's very wise advice thank you so much (laughs) thank you very much we've been talking about the fact that dr Teresa tam today confirmed that canada is in a sixth wave of covid19 the latest rise in cases across this country is fueled she says by the ba2 subvariant of omicron uh, she says there's multiple other indicators as well from ad- average daily case counts to lab tests positivity wastewater monitoring they all indicate increasing transmission of covid19 in recent weeks uh, Dr. Tam says getting your vaccines up to date is key, uh, as is getting a booster. She also suggests a vaccine plus approach to COVID. With disease activities very high and still rising in many communities, it's important to use other precautions like masking, improving ventilation or opting for outdoor settings and staying home if we have symptoms or have tested positive. Tam says we need to be prepared for a resurgence of COVID in the fall and winter and the potential need for an additional booster at that time. But what is the current state of the pandemic in Canada and how with data issues are we keeping track? How do we assess the risk to ourselves, particularly now that responsibility for staying COVID free is pretty much down to us? 
Joining me now with more on that is Dr. Tara Moriarty. She's an associate professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Dentistry with a cross-appointment to the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology in the Faculty of Medicine. She's also the principal investigator in the Moriarty Lab, an infectious diseases research laboratory, and is part of the COVID-19 Resources Canada Group. Uh, Dr. Moriarty, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Ben, for having me on. This has been a fascinating debate because you've really been focused on trying to find the right data. And I think one of the things that's been fascinating is that uh, while you've managed to pull together some really fascinating numbers, it's been a struggle to find out exactly what, get a clear picture of what the COVID case situation is like right now in this country. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I am far from being uh, unique. It's just that I, you know, talk about it more and I, I sort of publicly um uh, using Twitter, for example, talk about um, how to figure these things out, how to try to do these estimates, so people are can kind of learn as they go along as I'm figuring it out. But this is a problem that is facing um, uh, every epidemiologist across the country working on COVID, every modeler, um, every planner, anyone who has to try to anticipate what's going on with COVID. And that's at sort of the macro level. Um, and at the individual level, people are profoundly confused about what's happening, um, how they should respond to it, and um, are increasingly frustrated and also distrustful of institutions um, and of uh, governments to, um, to provide accurate information and to provide the support that people need. So it's a very difficult time, and um, not only is it crucial to get data to people that they can use in a, you know in an everyday way, um, but it's also really crucial to make sure that people know that there are scientists and others out there that many of us care deeply about the situations people are in and about this particular problem and that we're working really hard to try to support people and that we're there. Um, so we're really trying to establish community around that and make sure that every Canadian can talk directly to a scientist if they want. Yeah, the COVID-19 Resources Canada uh, project is fascinating because you are there, in fact, answering questions. And I know it's, it's it, you know, you all have your own specialties. I gather that modeling COVID isn't one of, isn't something that you're meant to be doing necessarily, just something no, that you have not. a skill, a, you yeah, have a skill at it, no. you have a skill at it. So you're able to do it, which is, which is part of the beauty of it to some extent. I, I noticed that yeah. everyone sort of pitches in what they can do to try to come up yeah. with some answers for people who are waiting for them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in, in some ways, I mean, COVID has been very um, interesting and liberating that way, I guess, um, for academics and for many of us like me. I'm very good at math. Um, I did, um, I'm an infectious disease researcher. I did a lot of biophysics work um, before uh, COVID hit. And um, I normally work on Lyme disease as well. So I've do, been doing a lot of um uh, sort of public engagement or interacting with people, talking, trying to understand what patient needs are. Um, so I have experience in that area and they, they morph together. But, you know, from the beginning of the epidemic, what became clear was that many, many people were going to have to take whatever skills they had um, that they were good at and try to adapt them and pitch in in different ways and uh, because no one was a COVID expert right before all this started and it's the ability to work with other people learn from other people and then sometimes just hustle and say okay I we don't have this it would be ideal if we had this information but we don't have it so how are we going to try to triangulate or work around that problem and the whole epidemic has been a series of um, troubleshooting problems related to data everything um, so you know, I enjoy working like that. And uh, there's nothing I love better than a problem to solve. <laughs> um, so in some ways, it's very energizing. And, and it's really interesting to be learning so much so fast from so many people. Um, so in that part, it's actually um, enjoyable. But it's also because we I and others, other volunteers have been talking directly, speaking directly with people for um, a couple of years now related to COVID and how we can help. It's very, um, 
it's very compelling. Um, you know, I uh, previously worked on very interesting and important problems, um, but this is so applied and there is such an urgent need and there's so many faces and people um, and stories um, out there that, that, and people I'm interacting with daily that um, the motivation to do this and the understanding of the importance of it is pretty acute. Um, and that part is wonderful. Like you saw the session this evening that you attended people from across the country, different, just there's something really lovely about many people getting together and talking and working together. Um, and it gives me hope when I get pretty discouraged. So it's good for me, <laughs> not just yeah. everyone else. <laughs> and and what was interesting too, is just, I, I realized that the data that you're, that you're coming up with, the numbers that you're coming up with, and I'll ask you about those numbers, yeah. but there are, I mean, you're, 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 there's always trouble with trying to be certain. We can't be certain, but you yeah. can at least yeah. some information is better than no information at all is, is what I took away from that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what have you been finding though, in this, as we enter what Dr. Tam said today, officially really is a sixth wave, depending where you are. Uh, but you, you've clearly seen evidence of that as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in provinces where certainly in provinces where there are waste, where there's wastewater data, it's been clear we've been in a sixth wave um, for quite a while. Um, you can see it in test positivity rates, which have really been going up. Um, and you can, that's something simple that people can check on on a daily basis. You can go to the, the pub, you can Google for Public Health Agency of Canada daily epidemiology report. And there's an interactive graphic there where you can look at the test positivity rates in every province. And if it's going up, it's not good. Um, so, so, um, yeah, there are lots of, of um, there are lots of uncertainties, but, you know, I and many others have been, um, since we really started testing and reporting a lot less in January, um, a lot of people have been working behind the scenes trying to come up with new ways to look at the data that help uh, deal with those uncertainties and overcome them. Um, and so what you're seeing now is the result of, of a lot of people having solved, not perfectly, but well enough that it's working well, um, some of these issues. So it just, it takes time, right? And if provinces had simply, you know, tested at their full capacity and reported well, um, there wouldn't have been, you know, scientists across the country trying to figure out workarounds, right? To get yeah. the information to people. That's, it's crazy. It's, there are so many things that, need to be done it's not a great use of of expert time right you've come up with a really interesting concept that i believe is also being worked on by others but it is this idea and i'll ask you but we'll take a quick break and when we come back i'll ask you more about it it's this idea we're all familiar with fire warnings when you go to a park you know it's low medium moderate extreme and they have the color codes and the idea is so that we know whether it's okay to go to the mall whether it's okay to go to bingo, as an example came up, uh, to institute this sort of warning system for people in their communities when it comes to COVID. And I wanted to ask you more about that. I'll do so right after this. Dr. Tara Moriarty is with us. She's an associate professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Dentistry, uh, as well as the principal investigator in the Moriarty Lab and Infectious Disease Research Laboratory and part of the COVID-19 Resources Canada Initiative, which is a group of scientists that essentially are there to help us uh, and to answer questions and provide knowledgeable guidance to us about the state of COVID and what we can do about it. Certainly an interesting and important resource at this time. I was really fascinated by this idea that you'd come up with. And I think a lot of it was down to the idea that uh, we've been kind of left to our own devices to figure out whether whether we can, you know, how dangerous the situation is around us when it comes to COVID. And it was this idea of putting together something like a what the fire warning system is like um, with with low and low to extreme. Uh, tell me a bit about that idea and, and, and how it's progressing. Oh, um, well, actually, it's really not a new idea. Um, right. Some provinces had um, kind of like a, a traffic light system, color coded system, um, quite a quite a while back um, in the epidemic, and it's a very good idea. So it's 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 a, a color coded system that says these are what the hazard levels are like, and these are the types of 
um, measures that you should take um, to protect yourself and your community according to the hazard level. Um, so it's not new. And um, and I've been reading a lot. There are um, scientists and groups of scientists in the U.S. who are trying to do something similar. There have been some really, um, really detailed, useful documents that have been made publicly available. Um, so I started thinking about that. And we, we badly need this in Canada. We have even less data um, and less testing and less reporting than, than in the U.S. or most other OECD countries. And um, so I started thinking about it, thinking about the types of data that we can actually obtain in Canada and how we can use them to, um, to assess risk. And along the way, um, I, I work a lot on COVID mortality. I'm, I'm an expert in that. Um, so along the way, I was um, working out ways to estimate how many infections we've had, looking at whether it measures up with wastewater data. So it was a convergence of a couple of things that I and many others, not just me, have been working on. And um, in these sessions that we have on Tuesday evenings, where we talk with anyone who wants to, anyone in Canada who wants to talk about COVID data, um, the idea of the the fire wheel, um, people have we've been talking about different ways to present this that go from very, very simple, like the fire hazard wheel down to more detailed because not everyone needs all the detail or wants it or has the time. Um, Not everyone reads well, not everyone has is comfortable with numbers. Right. Um, So you need to make sure that, that it's accessible to everyone um, and that it's readily understandable. So most of the, the planning in terms of making this um, accessible and usable has actually a lot of the input for that. Most of it has come from people from across the country who join this, um, this Tuesday evening session, um, many of whom are not scientists um, and who have um, particular personal concerns or others related to COVID. Um, and it's been really interesting. It's, it's really great to design something starting with people with input from people because it's what we're doing is quite different than I probably would have started out if left to my own devices. Um, So we're, we're getting there. We've got, I've, we've been able to collect a bunch of the different kinds of data that we know are available across the country. We're sort of trying to finalize some of it um, right now in terms of how to weight it. And I'm hoping um, that by next week, we'll have a, a really kind of crude homemade version up on a website um, that people can start trying out um, and that we can learn how they're interacting with it and what they and what people need. And I, really, the point I think here is to try to in, in a in an environment where things seem a lot more uncertain about the spread of COVID, that it allows people at least to get a cursory idea of what the situation where they are actually is. And it seems like it's an important update now to what we had in terms of color warnings back early in the pandemic. Uh, Yes, it does. And, and, you know, it takes into account a lot of things, Um, you know, the, the current and future hospitalization burden, um, the, you know, the, rate of people who have their third doses age like there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into it that were not as uh, available I guess early in the pandemic as well so we know we understand a lot more now than we did Um, so some of it it's easier to do this um, than it was previously it's just finding good data sources that are consistently available for every province. I often ask this question of people who spend a lot of time studying the numbers or or in in healthcare environments. Do you feel more optimistic now than you did six months ago about where we're headed with this? Um, well, I'm not sure. What I'm really worried about is people um, tuning out and really not being aware of of how serious the problem still is. I'm actually very worried about that. I'm very worried about fraying trust um, and social cohesion. You know, historically in every epidemic, the, the, the worst period is often the very end of it. And the reason it goes really badly is because the social cohesion, all of those things start falling apart and people can't work together. Communications aren't clear. That's what I'm, 
most afraid of right now, actually, even if we have, I mean, we have, even if we have treatments and preventions and everything else that are effective, um, we're not applying them and we're not providing people with the information they need. So what I fear is that sort of the human part of us <laughs> that has to actually do these things. That's what I fear right now. Um, uh, in terms of the virus, I just don't know. It feels like every six months there's a new problem and there are going to be variants. And I guess I, I think in the summer things will be better. I think maybe ask me in three months and I might have a better sense. But we're still looking priority? at probably 18,000 deaths in Canada. Sorry. I know. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, COVID-19 Resources Canada. You can Google it. It's a great resource. Dr. Moriarty, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for having me on.